I want to continue our study here in the book of Hebrews uh, this morning, and I'm going to be dealing with a passage here for the next 40 minutes that is a really interesting, I think informative, and in some ways difficult passage. As we continue on in our, our study, just kind of going through the whole book of Hebrews, we're now going to, we're coming to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 13 or so, and this is a really interesting chunk of scripture. It's really interesting because it's been used in some really interesting ways that I want to speak on. As I'll mention here shortly, it's been a, a passage that has had some interesting uh, role to play in my own life in the last uh, couple of years. One of the reasons why I, I like to, don't always do this, but I prefer to sort of just plow through Scripture, you know, verse by verse. It's not always the most exciting way to do things. And I may, in fact, I'm quite sure I'm going to go into a topical thing here in a little bit, just kind of as a break. But one of the, one of the advantages of just plowing through Scripture is that it forces you to deal with everything. So you don't just hit the fun stuff, the easy stuff, and the exciting stuff. You hit some of the gutsy stuff and the, and the difficult stuff. And this is, this is a difficult one, I think. Um, and, uh, and so it's a good opportunity for us to deal with it. Sometimes I preach and I'm shooting it more at the heart to motivate us. Other times I do more teaching and I'm aiming at the head. This morning is decisively more of a teaching kind of a thing. I, I, I want to have 40 minutes of instruction here on this passage. Um, Let's read Hebrews chapter 12. We'll start with verse uh, 4. The author, as you know, is encouraging these Hebrew Christians uh, to stay the course while they're thinking about abandoning the course because they see the possibility of persecution coming. So we have in verse 4, he says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Uh, and in essence, he's saying, what are you whining about? You have not, like all the other heroes of faith, died yet to resist sin little sermonette here, that verse is really convicting. Um, you know, have you shed blood yet in your attempt to resist sin? We so often cave in under a whole lot less pressure than that. Okay, verse 5. And you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as children. Here's the address, quote from the Old Testament. My child, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, or lose heart when you are punished by him. For the Lord disciplines those whom he loves, and he chastises every child that he accepts. Endure trials for the sake of discipline. God is treating you as children. For what child is there whom a parent does not discipline? If you, have not, if you do not have that discipline in which all children share, then you are illegitimate and not as children. Moreover, we had human parents to discipline us, and we respected them. Should we not be even more willing to be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us, these parents disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share His holiness. Now, discipline always seems painful rather than pleasant at the time, but later it yields the peacefulness, the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Just notice this in the last two verses. The purpose of holiness is to become more godlike, to become more holy, and to bear fruit. The fruit of righteousness, the fruit that comes out of the righteousness of God. That's why God disciplines. Therefore, lift up your drooping heads and straighten your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. This uh, suffering, this discipline that you're going to go through is going to strengthen you in your weak spots, the author is saying. Pray with me here for a moment. Father, in Jesus' name, we take this next 35 minutes now and commit it to you and ask God that you would anoint it powerfully uh, to produce the kingdom fruit in our lives and in our mind that you would have produced. 
I pray, Lord God, that this word may be healing to people who need healing uh, and encouraging to people who need encouragement, God. Let your instruction go forth in a balanced way that will really minister truth. Uh, Lord, uh, we turn it all over to you because I know, we know, that no matter what we do, it will not bear kingdom fruit unless you're in it. And only you can bear kingdom fruit. So, Lord God, be working in our minds and our hearts uh, to uh, bring truth, the truth that sets us free in Jesus' name. And the army of God said, Amen. Amen. Let me uh, get into this text this way. Uh, um, here's, here's one of the problems uh, that can be associated with this text. This whole idea that God disciplines those whom he loves. Uh, that suffering is, is, is divine discipline. I... Uh, a number of years ago, I was around 23 or 24 years old. I was working at my first church as an assistant pastor, and one of my jobs was to visit the uh, visit people in hospitals. So we got a call from a lady in our church that her sister's son had gotten injured, and she asked that I'd visit uh, them. So I did. I walk into the hospital room, and here's what I see. On the bed is this all-American-looking kid, just just a you know great-looking kid, but he's in traction. An 11-year-old boy in traction. And I see this mother uh, sitting next to him who's got death written all over her face. Her eyes are sunk. She clearly has not slept for a couple days. Uh, she just has, she's screaming hopelessness through her eyes. Uh, and she just stares kind of blankly into space as I walk in the room. Um, the, I, I had found out a little bit about the background here. The boy had fallen off of a slide and broke his neck. And the doctors say that he'll be paralyzed from the neck down. Uh, he maybe will regain the use of his arms, a little bit of use. Perhaps that's the best case scenario. Right now he's paralyzed. 11-year-old boy. I walk in this room, and I, it's kind of a blur to me as I think back on it. Uh, I remember looking at the kid, and the kid properly smiled back, and, but the mother just stared ahead. And I don't remember what I said, but I remember the minute I said it, I sounded very stupid. And then I tried to correct it, and I sounded more stupid. And it just seemed like everything, the minute I would say it, it's like in my mind it rehearsed one way, and when it came out, it sounded pathetic. Uh, and I finally got the point and kind of just shut up. Uh, I learned that there's some situations for which words do not fit. And I don't remember what our short, brief dialogue was there. I talked to the boy a little bit, and, and I tried to talk to the wife, the, the woman a little bit, the mother, uh, who had been there for three days since this event had happened. Um, I only remember this, that at one point, she's staring blankly into space with these sunken eyes, just shook her head and said, what on earth did we do to deserve this? Now, I enter into the, that question. What, what, what's behind that question? What is the picture of God in that question? The idea is that God was somehow getting you back. You deserve this. You know, what, what, what did you do? What, what did the kid do? Uh, that deserved being paralyzed the rest of his life. Um, see, I, I wonder this. Is, is this verse, oh, you know, suffering's about discipline. It's uh, God's chastising us, maybe punishing us, correcting us. Does this apply to everything? That's what I'm wondering. Uh, should I have said, well, you know, sometimes spankings hurt. You know, it's, it's tough at the, at the time, but it's, it's for your own good. I tell it to a little boy, it's for your own good. See, that is, I, let, let that sit for a second. That's, that's a tough pill to swallow. Uh, here's why this is also kind of an important uh, verse to me. Some of you know that I, uh, I've been involved in a little, little controversy lately, the last couple of years. You know, just, you know, theological discussions going on. And, and part of that whole thing, don't worry about it, I don't, uh, but, but uh, part of that whole shish kebab uh, 
is about this. About two and a half years ago, a prominent Christian leader stood up and, and, and read a letter that I wrote to my dad from Letters from a Skeptic. And I couldn't find it here this morning, but it's there. And in this letter, my dad is saying, how could God let a young lady get her arms amputated and get raped? Raped and then, then, then uh, uh, dismembered, left for dead. She ended up surviving. And my dad asked this question. This is an event that happened down in Florida. And he's saying, what higher purpose must God have had for this? Tell me. What purpose did God have for, for letting this, you know, happen? How does this fit into God's plan? Was he punishing her or something? And, and my response to him was, Dad, this is about the rapist. This is about the sicko. This is about what free agents do with their free will. It's not about God. Don't go looking for a higher purpose. And this, this uh, leader read, the, he didn't name me by name, but he, he held a book up and said, said I preach at Bethel, or teach at Bethel, so kind of... And he basically said, well, look at it. You know, here the verse says that there is a purpose to suffering. God's disciplining us. Boy doesn't think there's a purpose to suffering. Therefore, you know, Greg doesn't believe this passage, apparently, or doesn't believe the Bible or, or whatever. And that gets things going and words get out and whatever. So this is my chance to sort of clear the slate here. I get to, you know, here's my official stance on this passage. You know what? I believe this passage. Uh, one way of, well, look at there's a, there's, a, there's a big difference between disagreeing with someone's interpretation of a passage and not believing the passage. All right, a big difference there. This is an important passage, and I, I want to talk about it. Uh, he, this person uh, sent me a copy of his sermon, uh, or his discussion, whatever it was, the next day, and asked what I, how I would respond to it. And my response was, why didn't you send this two days ago? You know, it would have it been more effective. But anyways... I want to back into this text by first talking about, put it in the broader context of Scripture, and, and talk a little bit about what it's not saying, and then get to the point of what it is saying. Okay, What is going on here in Hebrews 12? And the question we're asking is this. How does God discipline us? What does discipline look like? Uh, and, and where do we apply this text? The first thing I want to say is this. I don't see in this text where the author says that all suffering, all evil in the world fits under this text. It's really important to notice what the author does not say. Now, if the author did say that, I'd be obliged to believe it, but he doesn't say that. What I find a lot in Scripture is this. Uh, a lot of times when evil stuff happens, it's not diagnosed as being the result of, of, of a secret will that God has. Now, we talked about this in a whole series several months ago called The Problem of Evil. Uh, I just want to review it a little bit here. Uh, I don't want to spend too much time on it, but I want to review it a little bit here because it sets the context for Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, you know, Jesus a number of times gave teachings that suggest that at least with some suffering, there isn't a divine purpose behind it. In Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, he mentions two catastrophes that recently happened and his audience knew about. Uh, a, a pilot had massacred a bunch of uh, Galileans, and a tower uh, had fallen down on a bunch of people, and a bunch of people got killed. And Jesus asked this question in Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. Do you think that those people were like getting punished for some sin, that they were more, greater sinners than you were? And his answer is no. But unless you all repent, you're all going to perish. In other words, what he's doing is attacking that mindset that tries to find a catastrophe as evidence for God's punishing sin. And then you feel kind of righteous because you're not getting punished. And Jesus is saying, hogwash with that whole thing. You're all a bunch of sinners that you need and you all need to repent or you're all going to perish. Don't go around trying to find God's will behind these secret catastrophes. Same thing with John chapter 9. They come upon a blind man. The disciples ask the age-old question. Well, someone's to blame here. Who's to blame here? We've got to blame somebody. It's someone's fault. 
So did this guy sin, and that's why he was born blind? Now think about that for a second. Uh, it's hard to commit some real terrible sins when you're still in the womb. But anyways, did this guy sin, or did his parents sin? Who sinned? Someone's to blame. Who sinned? And Jesus said, no, wrong question. Neither this man nor his parents, but let, in, in the Greek it just simply says, but let God be glorified, and he heals the man. You see, the whole book of Job is written to drive home the point that you can't draw one-to-one correlation between suffering that people go through and, and God's will, uh, God's purpose, trying to punish sin or, or, or whatever. Sometimes, the way the Bible portrays it, got a whole book on this if you're interested in this topic, God at War. Sometimes in a war zone, there's a war going on, there are free agents who've declared themselves to be against God's will, and sometimes in a war zone, junk, rubbish, scuba law just happens. It just happens. Bullets fly, bombs go off, and people get wounded. And it doesn't mean there's, there, there's, a, there's a will behind it, there's a purpose behind it, but it's not God's, it's the enemy's. And that's why Jesus, throughout his ministry, he talked to a, ministered to a lot of sick people, a lot of diseased people, a lot of lame people, lepers, blind people, mute people. Never once does he suggest, even remotely suggest, that there's something they did to deserve that or that there's some kind of secret purpose behind it that God has. Rather, he consistently, read Acts 10.38, says that Jesus came to free people from the bondage of Satan by healing them of their diseases. He sees a will behind this stuff, but it's not the will of his father. It's the will of the enemy of his father, and he came to establish God's will on earth as it is in heaven. So whatever else you do with Hebrews chapter 12, I submit to you that it, it's not meant to cover every possible conceivable form of suffering that people go through. Why this is so important is that I know that some of you here this morning have, have tasted of, of tragedy. Maybe you're even in the middle of it right now. Uh, maybe your son is the one who has been paralyzed, or you've lost a child. Did a men's retreat yesterday, and one of the people there just uh, last year had lost their four-year-old son to some strange disease. Uh, you lose a child, or maybe some of you have lost a spouse, or you've just you've tasted of tragedy, the nightmarish side of life, and it's out there. And it could be that you're sitting here this morning, maybe at the suggestion of some other Christian, saying, what did I do to deserve this? Uh, what is it that, that God's supposed to be punishing me for, chastising me for, and here Hebrews 12 could be used by some to legitimize that kind of thinking. And, and what I want to just you to see and, and to lock in on, is, is, is that that is not Jesus' first assumption when he confronts suffering. There's a, there's a place for that kind of thinking, but it's not when your kid is paralyzed or you're confronting tragedy in your life. Like, that was intended by God. And see, the, 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 what's really of a concern for me, and, and this is why I come back to it so much, is that that paints a picture. It paints a picture of God going around spanking parents by paralyzing their children. And it's quite arbitrary because so far as anyone can see as you look around the world, there's no correlation between bad parents who get spanked harder than good parents. It's, it, it, there's no reason why this kid got paralyzed and not Johnny or, or Susie on the playground. It, you know, it's arbitrary, so you get, a God, you get a picture of God who's going around arbitrarily spanking parents by paralyzing their children or letting their little girls get raped and mutilated. And that just is not at all anything close to the picture of God that you find revealed in the person of Jesus Christ who died on the cross. Not a close. <laughs> Frankly, it's, it, it's evil. Uh, that, that, Satan does that, you guys. Goes around and does that kind of stuff. So, you see, it's so important to know, to, to talk about applying scripture, knowing when to apply it, when not, when not to apply it. Because you can take a verse like this and you can do tremendous damage. 
The, the, the potential for anything for good is also its potential for evil. This has got the most potential for good. Boy, it has potential for evil. When used in the hands of an evil person, what did Satan use against Jesus? Take, take the word. Here, just take a little out of context. You know, you get a person in the right position, and you read this verse. Well, here it says, boom, boom, boom. And uh, that is, I think, how atheists are made. A second point is this. Sometimes in a war zone, we're in the middle of a war zone, stuff just happens. But my second point is this. It doesn't mean that your suffering is meaningless. Okay, it doesn't mean that's meaningless. For the believer, you have this promise in Scripture, Romans 8.28. And this now brings us to part of the way, not all suffering is intended by God as discipline. But God can use all suffering as discipline. So in all things, the Bible says God is working together for the better for those who love the Lord and are calling, call, called according to his purpose. Doesn't say, it doesn't have to mean, I shouldn't mean, that God is, is doing all things for, for the good, like God was behind the paralyzed kid. But rather, when, no matter what happens, when all things happen, even if it's a paralyzed child, you've got to know this, God invades that pain in order to bring, to ring, some redeeming value out of it. And part of the value can be, if we, if we, if we open ourselves up to God, part of the value can be that God will form us, he'll discipline us, he'll disciple us. Now know this, a lot of times when we use the word discipline, we mean punish. I'm going to discipline you. And that means I'm going to, you know, uh, you did something wrong and now you've got to be corrected. And the word can mean that. But the word doesn't have to mean that. Discipline is simply becoming a disciple. A disciple is a disciplined one. Jesus, the Bible says in, in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. We're talking about the Savior here. We're talking about the one who is very God and very man. We're talking about the one who is sinless. He was perfect. Yet the Bible says he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Human beings have got to learn. In fact, it says in Hebrews chapter 2 that he was made complete by the things which he suffered. Jesus was a perfect man. But even a perfect man has got to grow. You have to learn. You learn obedience. You learn the, the, the different attributes that were to be taken on. And suffering is a very, very good way to do that. Jesus learned obedience by the things which he suffered. He was disciplined. But not because he did anything wrong. But because he was doing things right. And God wanted to grow him to be exactly what God wanted him to be. And so it is with us. When God disciplines us, it's not that he's punishing us for something we did wrong. No, that can happen. But it doesn't have to be read like this. We, you need to know this, that no matter what goes on in your life, God is, if you're a believer, God's discipline is always motivated. This is, if you get anything out of this message, get this. The motivation is never to get even. God's motivation is always to grow us. He wants to form us into kingdom people. This world is not the, the final thing. It's, not, it's a prelude to the final thing. It's a prelude to reality. And so God is birthing us as kingdom people. And that means he wants to form a character in us that, is, uh, that reflects kingdom values and has kingdom priorities and knows the joy of dying to self and being selfless. And one of the best ways to form that character is through pain. There's stuff that happens to us in this war zone that God does not will. It's against what God, will, what God wills. But once it happens to us, God says, okay, here's some fertilizer that I can use to grow some kingdom fruit in your life, in Greg Boyd's life, and in, in whoever's life, if we will yield it to him. The question is this, will we submit to him in the middle of pain? Pain, in, pain one, of the, one of the most decisive things in terms of your developing character uh, is determined by what you do with pain in your life. How do you respond to pain, misfortune, tragedy? It can make you or it can break you. 
Take two, two uh, mothers that I knew. I used to work with brain-injured people. Two mothers of, of sons who were, who were severely brain-injured, incapacitated. Um, one was bitter. Her son, at the age of 20, with a life before him, had a motorcycle accident, and now he's, you know, he's in a wheelchair. He can't talk. He can't think straight. He drools. He's utterly incapacitated. And she's a bitter, bitter woman, angry. Uh, angry at God, though she doesn't believe in God. Angry at the world, cynical about everything. And I don't know what she was like before this happened, but I know what she's like after this happened, and it ain't pretty. Another mother of a son who's in just as bad shape had a very different response. Uh, she didn't really understand why this happened, uh, but she did know that there was a God uh, who loved her in the middle of this, and she learned to surrender the pain over to, to the Lord and, 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 and knew that God could be working if we would work with God. They, in, in, in Romans 8, 28, it says God is working together. Synergeo is the word. He's working with us. It, imply, it implies a yielding on our part. We've got to cooperate with God in this. If you yield like this woman did, God is able to bring, to, to bring beautiful stuff out of it. There was, there was a beauty to her, uh, a patience, um, a compassion, and a ministry that wouldn't have been there otherwise. Now, that doesn't mean that God had her son uh, get brain injured in order to do that. But once her son is brain injured, whatever the reason is behind that, God says, okay, I can, I can use this to cultivate, to, 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 to knead the dough into something that, that would be very, very beautiful. Uh, two, two people involved in difficult marriages. Two women involved and married to difficult men. They have two totally different responses. One does not yield it over to God, but is, married, is mad at God because she feels trapped in this bad relationship. She becomes bitter. She becomes angry. She blames her husband for everything. It just gets uglier and uglier. Another woman involved in an equally difficult marriage, maybe even more difficult, uh, learns how to, to, to surrender it to the Lord. And the Lord then is sad about this relationship, but says, I can use this. And so uses the pain of that bad marriage, the loneliness of that bad, bad marriage, to put a, a hunger in this woman's life for him. You, you want a real good marriage? Look at me. And, and, and God uses that unfortunate situation to draw her close to him. And as she gets close to him, she begins to bear fruit of joy and peace and patience, long-suffering, uh, other attributes that otherwise would not be there. On top of the fact that she lives her life with a kind of deep joy in spite of her despair over this, this, this bad relationship. She has a joy that passes, uh, a joy unspeakable, full of glory because she knows the Lord. On top of that, her marriage has a chance at least of someday improving. Because she's growing more and more like the Lord. Whereas the other person just locks themselves in to a negative thing. The issue is, is how do you deal? It's inevitable, I think, that, 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 that you're going to suffer at points in your life. Some more than others, but, but uh, you're going to suffer. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Now, it can be evil that causes the suffering, but once the suffering is there, it gives God a chance to, to wean us from the world, to wean us from self-addiction, to, to wean us from the little candy uh, delights that we, we, we can get so fixated on in this world, and to show us that He's got a different kingdom, a different kind of life, a different kind of love that can live through us, and, and, and that we can have a, a kind of God life that is sustained and constant, however bad the circumstances of our life may be. Amen? So know that not everything that happens is intended by God as discipline, but secondly, He can disciple us if we will let Him, no matter what happens to us. The third thing is this. God often uses... The natural law of cause and effect to disciple us. The natural law, this is a real important point here. 
Part of God's discipline is simply the fact that he has set up a universe that operates by rules. You couldn't really have a universe that didn't operate by rules, where the law of gravity operates one minute but not the next minute, you know, the laws of physics change here and there, the laws of the spirit world are constantly changing. For a world to be a world, it has to have some structure to it. God structures the world according to certain principles, laws. There's laws of nature. There's laws of of the spirit. There's laws of rationality. There's laws of morality. There's laws of society. Things operate in a certain way. Guarantee you that if I step out right now, I'm going to go down. Because there's a law that's invariant. It's the law of gravity. Okay? You run up against a brick wall head first, you know what? It's going to hurt. Because there's a law of physics that just says that the solidity of your head is going to collide with the solidity of the wall and it's going to hurt. So don't run into walls. Now the world is structured like this. God gives us a lot of wisdom in the Bible telling us what these rules are. Here, here's the ground rules. If you obey it, it's going to go well. These rules will work for you. If you disobey it, if you try, you're spitting into the wind. You're running into a wall. You're, you're declaring war on the universe. And the universe always wins, you see? Uh, the, the, the laws that have been set up, this is part of God's discipleship. He lets the law of cause and effect, action and reaction, to play itself out in our life. Uh, when the Lord says, for example, one example, uh, in, in the book of Exodus, he says, I am a just God. I visit the sins of the, fa- the, of the parents on the third and fourth generation. Now, I, as I read it, I, it's, it's about the laws by which God set up the cosmos. I, I don't see God saying, you know what, I'm going to get even with those great, great, great grandchildren parents by getting after their kids, their grandkids. Uh, then it seems it's a little bit odd to you. But there is a rule, I believe. It's a principle that, that operates in this cosmos. That it's, about, it's, it's a law of moral responsibility. That parents, when they make choices, sometimes those choices can have ramifications on their kids and on their kids' kids and on their kids' kids' kids. All right? That, that, that's part of the moral responsibility. Now, a wise person will take that into consideration. When you make decisions. It's not just about you. It's about you and your kids and not only about them, but their kids and their kids. So God, by setting up the moral God, sets up a system of moral responsibility and tells us the rules. And if you operate with those, it goes well. If you don't, it doesn't go well. And that's part of discipline. The Bible says that, that um, uh, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't, you know, deal with it real quick. Because if you swallow that, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25 and 26, uh, you give the enemy a foothold. Don't let, you know, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Um, Here's the point. There's a rule. This, God knows how we're made. God knows how the world is structured. God knows the spirit world. And he tells us. You know what? If you swallow anger, it starts to really become a pollutant. It gets yicky on the inside. And you become prey for the predator. I'm just warning you now. Therefore, live according to this rule and get rid of anger quickly. Okay? Now, it's not like God's up there saying, okay, I'm going to punish you for swallowing anger. Hey, demon, sick him! It's rather just the law of the cosmos. You know what? If you're, if you're walking with this bitterness, you're going to be attracting bitter junk in your life, and it's going to get worse for you. The Bible's full of wisdom like that. God just saying, hey, there's a wall over there. Don't run into it. Oh, and there's a wall over there. Don't run into it. And you know what? And here's a really important wall not to run into. The Bible's full of that. The other day I was just reading Proverbs. Uh, let, let me just read a couple of these. Proverbs is like the book of the rules of the universe. Um, let's listen to this. Uh, chapter 15. I just was reading this the other night in thought, hey, look at all this. I'm right. <laughs> I love it when the Bible occasionally agrees with my theology. Yeah. It's really a plus. 
A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. There's a principle. You know, if someone's really coming at you, if you just speak softly, generally speaking, it will turn away their anger. But if you have a harsh word, ah, oh, you sniping, snippety scoundrel, uh, you're probably going to stir up some anger. Have you found it to be true? Okay, God's saying, you know what? You can go ahead and have harsh words to people when they have harsh words to you, but there's a brick wall and you're going to be running into it. Uh, it's your choice. A gentle tongue is a tree of life. But a perverse, uh, but a perverseness in the tongue breaks the spirit. If you have a perverseness in your tongue, which means kind of a twistedness, or could mean a, 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 a violence streak in it, um, that's going to break spirits, and there's going to be consequences. Now, if you want to do that, go ahead. But you're running up against one of the rules by which God created the world. All right, uh, a fool despises a parent's instructions. If there's kids here, listen up. A fool despises a parent's instructions, but the one who needs, who heeds admonition, is prudent. Hey, here's the principle, generally speaking. There's a rule that if you listen to your parents, things are going to go better for you in, in, in your childhood and later on than if you don't listen to them. If a person, if you can't get instruction, if, you're, if you have an unteachable spirit, you're going to be running into brick walls all over the place, you see? Um, God, now that's discipline, that's discipleship. God is teaching us wisdom by letting us run into the walls. But it's not like he's got a special agenda to do that. He just lets the law of cause and effect uh, play itself out. So it is in all of our life. If you don't take care of that anger problem, you're going to be making choices that are going to be running you into a, a, a brick wall. If you don't take care of that lust problem, you're going to be making choices that are going to run you into in a brick wall. You have sex outside of marriage. You're playing with fire. You're going to end up running into a brick wall. There are consequences for things. This is what the Bible means when it says you reap what you sow. All right? There's an action. There's a reaction. God knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows the entire world, and he tells us about it. We don't always see the wisdom in what he says, but I can guarantee you this. When you try to outsmart God, you don't do it. It may work for a little while, but eventually you hit the brick wall. You're spitting into the wind. You're, you're defying the rules of the universe. This is part of, of, of God's discipleship. Now, let me say this. Sometimes, um, sometimes we spit into the wind. This is an analogy now. Uh, <laughs> and as soon as we do it, maybe, before it actually comes back on our face, we go, oops. But it still comes back on our face. I, at least it's a memorable analogy, okay? It's not the nicest one, but... You know, okay, in other words, you can repent of an action and still suffer its consequences. But those consequences doesn't mean that God didn't hear your repentance. Very important point here. Um, the, the rules operate. The law, the, the world has, has a structure to it. And, and actions bring about consequences. Uh, and you can repent of the sin. You must repent of the sin. And you're right with God. You're okay with God. The blood covers it. But there are still consequences to pay. You go out driving drunk. You kill a kid. You repent of it. God forgives you. But there's gonna, the kid is still dead. And the parents of the kid are still going to grieve. And you're going to have to live with that. And maybe there'll be, probably there'll be a prison term that you're going to have to serve. That the fact that the consequences go on doesn't mean that you weren't really forgiven. You were. But there are still consequences uh, to what you did. A 70-year-old who's a hard drinker all of his life can repent of the thing at the age of 70, but he still might die of cirrhosis of the liver. A, a young person who's promiscuous for a number of years repents of it when they're 25 or whatever, but they still might have to deal with a sexually transmitted disease or a child that they brought into the world. You don't turn back the hands of time just because you repent. But don't interpret the fact that you have the consequences there as evidence that God doesn't love you, that God isn't for you, that God hasn't forgiven you. In fact, 
Go back to step number two. When you're dealing with consequences of previous decisions that do not go away. Uh, and number, rule number two, that I, point number two I gave was this. God can use it all for your good if you'll surrender to him. It may be that you have got yourself in, to, in a royal mess. You have really made bad decisions. You have screwed things up irreversibly. One of the darkest sides of sin is the fact that some of it is irreversible. And so the consequences get played out. But know this, even then, if you surrender it to God, He's not happy about what happened, but now it becomes, it becomes fertilizer for him. And he will be, he's all over you. He loves you. He wants to walk with you through this. Don't harden yourself against him. Uh, yield. Become pliable in his hands. And it, it, you may not see it immediately. Sometimes it takes a while. But in time, you begin to see how God can work something beautiful out of even our monumental major, major league screw-ups. He's wise enough and smart enough to be able to do that. Not everything that happens is God's will. Suffering sometimes just happens. Number two, it doesn't mean that suffering is meaningless. God can bring meaning to a meaningless event. Uh, uh, he's, he's in all things, working it to, uh, together for the better. Number three, the law of cause and effect operates. And uh, there, you reap what you sow, and it doesn't mean that God hasn't forgiven you. Uh, it does mean that you need to learn from it and be discipled by it. The fourth point, and my final point is this. Sometimes... Sometimes, God actively disciplines us, which means this. He orchestrates pain into our life. He orchestrates it because we need it. Uh, or he sees that it will do us good, or he sees that it will do someone else good. Now, this is tough love, but it's love. Know this. I said this before. Lock it in. God's motive is always love. It's not about getting even. It's about growing us. He wants us to grow to become kingdom people. Sometimes, for whatever reasons, it fits his providential plan to orchestrate pain into our life. God's top agenda is not to keep us pain-free. God's top agenda is to make us kingdom people. And if he has to orchestrate pain into our life, in other words, this isn't a matter of God letting us hit a brick wall. It's a matter of God putting a brick wall there. See the difference? We're running in the wrong direction. Oh, this analogy really works. Uh, we're running the wrong way, and God maybe says, Hey, Greg, turn around. Greg, turn around. Hey, Greg, turn around. Whoosh, brick wall. And Greg goes, Whoa! This is, this is loving discipline of the harshest sort. But he does it not to be mean, but because he loves us. Prominent Christian leader some years ago, uh, evangelist, um, was caught in an affair. It had been going on for several years, and the circumstances in which he got caught were just so coincidental that he was sure, and everyone was sure, that it was God had, had specially orchestrated this booby trap for this guy to get caught. And it was nightmare for this guy. He lost everything because of this, this whole thing. And, and it was tough. It was as harsh as it could possibly be. But years later, he said, it was the hand of God. It was the gracious hand of God that saved me. Because he had been trying for quite a while to wake me up, to, to stop this from happening. And finally he had to blow the whole thing sky high in the most lurid kind of way in order to get my attention to change my life because he has my eternal well-being in mind. Pain can be God's grace operating to turn us around. It doesn't have to always be punishment, but oftentimes it is a way of correcting us. It turns around. I know Jim Baker has the same, the same idea, uh, that God, 
It was tough what he went through. He had to pay a great price. But it was God's way of, uh, of, he loved Jim Baker too much and loved the other PTL staff members too much in the, in the 80s to let this, this shenanigan, this was a real sham now, an organized religion sham, to let that keep on going. And so he blew the whole thing sky high. Now, I don't believe, I don't believe for a second that this explanation covers paralyzed little kids and raped little kids and other sorts of horrendous evil that, that people enter in their life. But I do think it explains some things, like perhaps why the IRS decided to audit you this year. Um, you know, it could, I could see God saying, you know what, uh, I need to teach, let's pick a name here, John, uh, to stop uh, you know, cheating on the taxes. And so, boom, they noticed that. Or other things like that. God puts a brick wall there, so we run into it in order to turn us around. Now, how does this apply to Hebrews chapter 12? I can do this in two minutes. In the early church, they consistently saw martyrdom, way different than we would understand it. Martyrdom was considered a great privilege. We talked about this uh, a couple weeks ago. Martyrdom, generally speaking, was here's a chance where I get to, number one, have my character uh, freed from this world. I get to be uh, uh, refined uh, in, in a way that will make my character holy. You find numerous passages in the New Testament that talk about this. First uh, Peter chapter 4, for example. How it's a privilege, an opportunity to go through suffering in a way that Christ did. We participate in Christ's suffering. It's one of the ways that we manifest His righteousness in our life. We get to prune away the dross or, the dross or uh, junk in our life that, that is inconsistent with God's character. We get to witness for Christ the way Christ witnessed for the, for the kingdom of God uh, through His death. Paul says in, in, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, he says, It is God's gracious privilege that I get to suffer uh, the way... Uh, I can really make a point. What do you think of that? You know. It's probably not good for the mic, though, so I better... I'll get an evil eye from Craig. Knock that off. Right. He says, It's God's gracious privilege that I and you get to suffer with Christ and testify to His grace this way and, and to have ourselves freed from the world in this way. All right? So the author of Hebrews is saying, You guys, uh, you know, being a Christian, you need to expect suffering. You need to expect persecution. Here's how God is going to refine us. They're thinking about running away, and that is sin. And so God wants to stop that sin, puts a brick wall there, says that's not going to happen. And this is going to be, this persecution, the author doesn't know for sure it's going to be happening, but he says if it does, see it as discipline. God's growing you. God's cultivating you to be kingdom people. And you get a chance to participate in the sufferings of Christ, the same way Christ did, and you get a chance to witness to the truth. As you grow the fruit of perseverance, you'll witness to the truth of the kingdom of God in a way that maybe you otherwise wouldn't have doing it. I wouldn't be able to do it. It doesn't cover all suffering, but it covers, but it covers this kind of suffering. It covers some. Now, some people ask the question, how do you know what is what? How do you know if, if God put the wall there or the wall was already there? Is God just using suffering or did God ordain the suffering or whatever? Sometimes you can tell and sometimes you can't tell, but it doesn't really matter. Because no matter what's going to happen to us, we should surrender it to the Lord. And trust that God will use it to build us, to, to build his kingdom through what's going on. So, four points in conclusion. This will take four seconds. Number one, don't interpret all evil as God's uh, discipline. Some of it is just evil. Number two, 
all suffering, if we will cooperate with God, if we'll bend and yield to God, he'll use in our life and in the life of other people to further his kingdom. In all things, he's working together for the better for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. Number three, listen to God's wisdom. There are brick walls out there. You guys, we are blind rats in a maze with the lights turned off. We don't know where the, where the, where the, 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 the walls are. So God tells us, two feet to the right, don't hit it. Oh, three foot ahead, don't hit it. He tells us where the walls are. If we ignore that because we think we have light on our own, we'll keep running into them. For, for God's sake and for your own sake, listen to the principles of God's word and live by them. They'll work for you rather than against you. And the final point is simply this. The point of all discipline is to wean us from the world, to, to wean us from our self-addiction, to prepare us to be citizens of the kingdom of God that is, is coming about, and any, to the extent that we grab onto this world, as God prized the world from us, it's going to hurt. That's discipline. To the extent that we open up freely, it happens naturally. Let go. Let go. Die to self. Get your eyes focused on God's world and the values that he has. And let this world take its course. Praise God. Father in heaven, in Jesus' name, I thank you for loving us enough to stop us, to save us from ourselves, Lord. Father, I pray that we would all here this morning... Uh, take the pain of life, the suffering of life, and sometimes even the tragedies of life, Lord God. And I pray, Lord God, that we would be able to discern good from evil and know that you're always about good, but at the same time know that you're the omnipotent, sovereign God of the universe who can work through all things to bring about your plan in our life, Lord God, to bring about, Lord God, uh, to redeem the evil, to redeem the suffering, to bring about kingdom fruit, and to further and advance your cause in the world. Lord, help us to submit to that, Lord, and not be hardened. And, 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 and uh, veer off the course, Lord God. In Jesus' name, make us your kingdom people who witness to the world around us with everything we say, do, think, and even suffer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The front of the auditorium is open with a prayer. Uh, the altar people come forward. If you'd like to pray about any need whatsoever, uh, whether it has to do with the message this morning or not, I encourage you to come forward. Otherwise, go forth, proclaim his word.